by beta, the beta by gamma. This is how I've arranged it in my notes. I'm just letting you cheat. You can look at my paper. And now we're in delta. Operation delta, it just happens to fit. I usually do 100 pages per file. So we have about 300 and some pages of notes. Then delta begins a new phase, and it's interesting that the triangle that forms the Greek letter delta has to do with the Trinitarian philanthropy, Trinitarian philanthropy, which Ephesians 2.4 calls God's great love and abundant mercy. It's also interesting that where we're going now, the center, the delta center, is Romans 5 through 11. It's a double center. And there are a series of peaks in which doctrine reaches heights that it doesn't reach elsewhere in all the Word of God, really. Romans 5 through Romans 11. Romans 5 through 8, generally speaking, deals with what Ephesians 2, 4 calls God's great love. God's great love. God's love is the principle or the source and origin of his justice and his righteousness, not the other way around. Justice isn't the source of God's love, but love is the source and the origin of God's justice, his policy of justice, his saving righteousness. And in Ephesians 2.4, then we have not only God's great love on the one end, but we have God's abundant mercy on the other, which is the subject of Romans 9 through 11. Ephesians 2.4 grabs it all up. God's great love starts off Romans 1.5.1 through 8, then Romans 8.31 to 39. Nothing can separate us from that great love. Then Romans 9 through 11 deals with the identity of Israel as the lovers of God and of course climaxes in the passage beginning at 1132 where God shows mercy to all and then that's followed by a doxology in 33 to 36 all things are by him or from him and through him and to him and that's doxology which indicates what our lives in Christ should be. It is decorum, we might call. It becomes the saints to have humility in the light of this great astonishing love and gratitude in light of this astonishing abundant mercy, which we are finding out is universal. I have not reached yet the peak of doctrinal discovery that I intended to reach and only now I'm coming around full circle to something that began for me by a stunning disclosure in January of 1972 and I realized that though testimony isn't the primary thing in ministry the testimony that I have of the reality that is Jesus Christ is extremely significant to me and to the message that I've preached. And that's coming to a full circle now. I'm, a, I'm actually, I've been in a state of mild astonishment since about 2007. And now I'm in a sort of slightly heightened state of astonishment. So the more quiet I get, 
the more you know that I'm probably astonished. So our life is, it's becoming to the Lord if it's categorized and characterized by humility in the light of God's great love, gratitude, grace. It would be great if Tetelestai would be characterized by the 10th leper. Jesus healed 10 lepers. One decided to come back and say thank you. And Jesus said, where are the nine? Not condemningly, but it just seems that thanksgiving and gratitude for the great mercy received is something that just has what we might call decorum, the right way, the approved way of livingness. It's just the way we ought to live, the way we ought to respond to God's grace. We're also finding that God has invaded this evil age with two invasions. The first is the divine mission of the Son. The second, the divine mission of the Spirit. I'm summing up a lot of big things now before we get down to our subject in Romans 12 on one grace and many gifts. But in that invasion, God has not asked the permission of the evil age, for neither did on D-Day the Allied forces ask for the permission of Germany to invade Normandy and to liberate France. (laughs) There was no, can we do this? And God did not ask permission of you and of me to manifest his irresistible grace either. It's important that we understand, and it's illustrated, I think, in a nice way in Luke, where Zacchaeus, up in a tree to see Jesus, Jesus simply says to him, come on down, I'm coming to your house. There's nothing in there about an invitation by Zacchaeus. The invitation is by Jesus Christ. He invites himself. He doesn't require the permission of Zacchaeus. He just comes to his house. And having come, he said to him, today, salvation has come to your house. Salvation came to his house because salvation is Jesus. The sum total of reality is salvation, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is constitutive of, or all reality is constituted of, Jesus Christ himself as God's saving, reconciling reality. And this is the fact, this is the, the fact and the truth of the matter. But only faith, which is a gift from God, which we have uncontingently given to us by God's grace. Only faith has the conviction of that unseen reality. The reality is that all reality is Jesus Christ and his saving grace. This is how God sees it. This is what's true in the eternity of God. And this is what is true in time with man, but it has not yet been realized. The future to us is not the future to God, but the future to us is the moment and therefore the everlasting moment of the realization that God has already made all reality to be his son, Jesus Christ, his saving reality. There's another word that I want you, a couple of phrases. This is all 
something that I, th- I have to do first because these are the big ideas that are gripping my very being right now. Let's look at the word kenosis. We've looked at that before. The comes from the Greek word kenao. These are all, again, this is just all intro for where we're going here. Kenao comes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and following. The kenosis is the self-giving, self-humiliation of Jesus Christ to the point of obedience to the death of the cross and therefore his exaltation which is a supreme exaltation where he fills up everything with himself. And that's very important. Ephesians 1, 19 to 21 deals with that. And so there is a thing called in God-approved livingness, which humility and gratitude are becoming attributes of. There is what we might call, and others have called it already, but I like the word, canonic love. Canonic love is the kind of love That is more than just mimicry. When we say imitating Christ, we don't mean crass mimicry, but manifestation of his kind of love one toward another. By love, we serve one another in canonic love. It's a self-emptying, self-giving kind of love, which is only possible in and by the Holy Spirit, in Christ Jesus, in participation with him, and therefore canonic love. There's another word called promeity. And again, I want to take some of these lofty terms from theology and bring them down to where we live because that's really where we live. Promeity means that God actually exists as salvation. God's very existence is God's existence to save. God's very existence is his existence to save in other words god his very existence and being as god is a being for you a being for us a being an ontology a state of being which is for us god only exists as the saving god therefore his judgments are salutary Another word for salvific. His last judgment, as we're hoping to come to in a fairly near or a fairly close teaching in the near future. The last judgment is going to be God's ultimate future act of philanthropy. The ultimate act of philanthropy, God's overwhelming love for humankind, his Unconditional love, his unrestricted love, his unstoppable love for all of mankind is going to be demonstrated in what has what used to be and is traditionally thought of as a day to be dreaded the last judgment. The scripture teaches about the last judgment as a day to be expected with heads held high, shoulders back and great joyous anticipation and hope because it will be. The universal appearance of what appeared to only a few on Calvary's hill. The great love and the endless mercy of God expressed in a crucified Messiah. Who, three days later, arose from the dead for our justification. The justification of all. Promeity, then, is God's existence 
as a saving God. God exists savingly toward human, the human race. And so this will come to, again, in studying Romans, and this will give you the big picture of Romans, in studying from our pincer strategy, we have discovered a lot of things. I'm surprised because usually when you have a strategy, it falls apart, as combat veterans know, and as people study in the war colleges know, any plan is destined to fall apart after the firing of the first shot in a conflict, and that's pretty much true. But in our pincer strategy, we've approached Romans from the left flank, staring at the left, us facing frontally, Romans the epistle. That's Romans 1 through 4. And Romans 12 through 16, which I'm going to wrap up tonight, is the right flank. Both of these squeeze toward the center, which I just aforementioned, mentioned beforehand, is 5 through 11. And that's going to be Operation Delta will be either in two operations or one. Operation Delta 1, Operation Delta 2, which will finish our study of Romans. It's important for us to understand that even from the standpoint, traditionally, if you deal with the verses, I'm not dealing with words per se, but if you deal with verses, Romans 8.31, and I'm adding 32, is the living center of Romans. And that's where God provided himself a lamb, as he promised, as Abraham promised Isaac. He did not spare his son, but freely gave him up for us all. Therefore, we have two God for us in the center of Romans, for us. God is for us. Prometi, God exists for us. His very existence is the existence of a saving God, a God who, by the virtue of his very essence and being, saves and name. And that's why the name of his only son the man Christ Jesus is Jesus because Jesus means Yahushua, Yahweh saves. Yahweh by his very nature, Yahweh by his very essence is a saving God. Our God exists for us. It's astonishing. For us is mentioned twice, Romans 8.31. If God is for us and the fulfilled condition of the Conjunction E is used there that states an irrefutable, incontrovertible fact. God is for us. And because that's so, no one can be against us. No one can succeed against us. The accuser of the brethren, one another against us, ourselves, our own conscience. Sometimes we're not so worried about the devil, as it were, as our own conscience that condemns us. Our own conscience, our own heart condemns us. But if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. That means God who doesn't condemn is greater than your heart that does self-condemn from time to time. Self-condemnation is the evil of human guilt. And God wants to purify us from that through the word because how much more shall the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? More importantly, still 32, he freely gave up his son on behalf of us all. God for us all is the right in the heart of Romans, the heart of Romans, God for us all, the resurrection, the ascension, the crucifixion, all. So in the dead center of Romans, where we end, we have the word pantone, and you might 
recognize that word because it is the last word in Revelation, which we proceeded to study from front to back. Pantone, the last word we study in Revelation, all. The last word we'll study in Romans is all. Pantone. Pantone seems to be thematic. All of God exists to save all of mankind. What you may not know yet is that reality itself is Jesus Christ, the act of God in Jesus Christ reconciling. The reconciliation that is Jesus is the reality that is the whole of reality. And faith, God's gift, lays hold of this. Faith, God's gift, knows this eventually, is persuaded of this, and is therefore assured of this knowledge being complete and universal down the road. All of this wants to undergird where we're going next. So, Father, we thank you and we pray that you will bring about the obedience of faith in your people here tonight through what we're about to receive and for which we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting Romans 12, 1, to pick up where we left off. My main aim tonight is Romans 12, 4 through 8. Last week we considered 12, 9 through 21 in connection with Romans 13, 1 through 7. We showed how submission to the authorities or the powers that be is flanked by the dynamic state of love. God approved livingness, so it's part of God approved livingness. Romans 12.1, so by the mercies of God, siblings, I urge you to present your bodies to God as a living offering or sacrifice, consecrated and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. As a result of this, verse 2, do not be conformed to this transient age, what Galatians 1.4 calls an evil age elsewhere, but be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking, resulting in the affirmation of the good, the well-pleasing, and the completely attained will of God. That's a phrase that needs to be developed. Verse 3, for through the apostolic grace, I put that word in there because of Romans 1.5, through the grace that was given to me as an apostle. So it's apostolic grace. Paul is speaking here with authority, but it's authority not like the Pharisees and scribes and the hypocritical traditional religionists of the time. It's an authority that itself is grace. And so he said, I, through the apostolic grace that was given to me, I, that's Paul, say to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, he or she. Right here then, Paul highlights humility as that which becomes us, that which is, well, it's decorum in the spiritual life. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, and right here again, he commands against all selfish pride and the pride that's rooted in group biases, especially Gentile Christians against Jewish Christians, and on the other flank, on the other side, Romans 11, Jewish Christians against Gentile ones, 
as well as Gentile ones against Jewish ones. Instead, he said, it is necessary to think reasonably as each one has been assigned faithfulness, as that means Christ's faithfulness. The faithfulness of Christ is used throughout Romans, in my view, and in my so far settled conviction. This isn't just a faith like God measures out a little bit of faith here and a little bit of faith there and a lot to somebody else and a lot to somebody else. And he does do that in some cases. He gives the gift of faith, which is an extraordinary gift, which lays hold on things that are unseen and has assurance of things hoped for, perhaps more deeply rooted than other people's faith. And that's nothing to brag about. It's just a gift of God. But what he's talking about here is a standard that is Christ's own faithfulness. Every one of us, he says, has been assigned faithfulness as the measure and standard of judgment. So how do I judge the world? How do I judge people? Well, that person's a believer. That person's an unbeliever. So I do this binary view of humanity. That person's damned. That person's saved. No. I judge by the standard of the faithfulness of Christ, whose faithfulness embodied all human beings. And so I see... You may not see this. I see all human beings as already reconciled to God in Christ. I see this by faith, which is a gift that God gives. It is a conviction of unseen things. I don't go with that translation that says faith is the substance of things not seen and the evidence of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and the substance, because that's objective. I go with the subjective definition of faith. Faith, therefore, is not the substance of unseen things. It's the inner conviction. It's my conviction, your conviction of unseen things. That's God's gift to us, a conviction of unseen things. The unseen reality that is certainly not seen by sight, is the reconciliation of the world by God in Christ. God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not imputing their sins to them. This brings us into a radical change of thinking. And it's based on the standard of Christ's faithfulness. On the standard of individual faith, some, in our view, may be in God's favor, others in his disfavor. But by the standard of God's faithfulness, All have been reconciled. By the standard of Christ's faithfulness, all have been reconciled. This goes along with 2 Corinthians 5.14. I have determined and come to this settled determination that if one died for all, and again, the fulfilled condition, he did, then all died. All died when he died. But his death was followed up by the inevitable resurrection. So as he died, all died. So when he rose, all were justified. And so that's the way we look at the human race, by faith. It's changed my whole being so radically, it's almost indescribable. And I know it's done that for many of you too. And it's, we're in the process, and we're always in the process of a kind of conversion, a coming around to God's viewpoint is... As we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, he 
elevates us. He lifts us up. That's a gradual humiliation and a gradual elevation by God till we see as he sees. The future is present to God. It's future to us. But the future that's present to God, in the future that's present to God, the whole world is reconciled to Jesus Christ. Therefore, God can say, it's all right. And he means it. It's all right. And he means it. And ultimately, it is all right. So then, as the measure and standard of judgment, Christ's faithfulness. Now, here's where we pick up. Verse 12. For just as in one body we have many parts, and not all the parts have the same function. The word here is praxis in the Greek. It means mode of acting. We call it modus operandi. Not all the parts have the same function. Praxis is the word. So we, the many, he says, are one body in Christ. Now he goes from the many members and the one body to the many gifts and the one grace. All of this is toward the demolition of walls. If there's no cultural bias, no racial bias, no ethnic bias, no bias based on background or environmental handicaps or advantages, maybe there's a bias left over of that person has this gift. I don't. I'm jealous of that gift. I wish I had that gift. I can do that better than them. I can teach better than he can. And so without the Spirit's endowment, they try teaching. And sadly, they may have a natural gift for it, but not a spiritual enablement. So eventually they go off the rails, and they have to come to a catastrophic realization they don't have the gift. Whether it's teaching, whether it's caregiving, whether it's helps or service, giving mercy, etc. Now, there is all of us are, in, are to give or show mercy because of God who showed mercy to us. But there's a specific gift of showing mercy in, for example, personal caregiving, etc. We're going to get into just kind of hitting the surface of some of these things. But you'll notice in Romans 12.4, just as as in one body, that's the human anatomical structure, the human body, we have many parts, and not all the parts have the same function, Verse 5, so we, the many, are one body in Christ. That phrase, en Christo. If you're wondering how to end letters or long texts or emails, and you don't know how to end it, just write this, en Christo, in Christ. It's pretty good. It's almost as good as yours truly or sincerely or cordially. People don't even use any of those anymore, but en Christo is the phrase here. Why is it significant? Because this blessed phrase, that's just an O here, en Christo, in Christ, can be in participation with, it can be locative of sphere. We are in Christ, we certainly are, as a sphere of living. He comprises our life. He is our life. And when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. En Christo is used then, we are one body in Christ. It's a blessed phrase because it's used 13 times in Romans and over 80 times in all the 13 Pauline epistles, the epistles ascribed to Paul. 13 Pauline epistles, over 80 times the phrase en Christo is used and 13 times in Romans itself. I know of no more 
intimate expression of the oneness, interdependence, and unity of the body of Christ than this verse in looking at them all. Again, let's look at verse 5. So we, the many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Again, there's no more intimate expression of the oneness, interdependence, and unity of the body of Christ than there is in this verse. Others are comparable, but here, where there's a context in which Paul is pressing for unity at the expense of group, proud group biases, this is the pièce de résistance of all the verses on Christian unity in terms of their expression, the expression of Christian unity. Paul is saying that we are as connected as one body part to another, and the body does not function without all the parts, nor does it function properly without all the parts in coordinated unity. There's a series of fractures among the Roman saints, even as today there is a series of fractures among the saints in the world today. Those who call themselves Christians, those who don't know they're Christians, those who are anonymous Christians, those who are vocal and shouting Christians. There's a series of fractures among the saints in Rome And it's indicated by such antinomies or opposing opposites like wise versus ignorant, Greek versus barbarian. We see this right off the start in Romans 1.14 and following. Jew versus Greek. To some, Greek is a proud label to be worn because it suggests wisdom, education in philosophy, Refinement, the arts and sciences such as they were at the time, as opposed to the untaught, and I'm sure there's a lot of other names for them, ignorant, moria is a word, M-O-R-I-A, we get the word moron from it, all those names. For some Greeks, Jew, well, that was a shameful label to be worn by a people whom God had elected and then expelled That's what they think. And others have thought that throughout history. You may have recollected the 20th century. God has not expelled or forsaken or abandoned his people whom he elected. That's the whole point of Romans 11. We'll see that. Now, but for some Greeks at the time, including Greek Christians, Jew was a shameful label to be worn by a people whom God had elected and then expelled. For both Jews and Greeks, barbarian was a label that should be worn by people beyond the geographical borders of what they called civilization. Skyscrapers, human technology, self-driving cars doesn't make a civilization. Civilization is made by divinely produced virtue. And so we think civilization is something that sometimes it isn't. The Scythians, 
I always like to use them as an example. Scythian, S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N-S, Scythians. They only come up once in Colossians. I'm going to have to, I just thought of this, I think I'm going to have to uh, kid my daughter-in-law, Alexandra, because she's from the Black Sea in Ukraine, and that's kind of around where the Scythians came from. So I'm going to use this. It's going to be fun. But she's a sweetheart. And she can take a joke. So Scythian is a, well, they were famously considered barbarians. In fact, the name Scythian became equivalent to savage, savages as were the inhabitants of Spain, also called barbarians. And that's where Paul was headed. Uttered in the mouths of those with bias toward their own culture, background, ethnicity, environmental handicaps, or advantages, any of these words can be subtly or overtly contemptible or, almost worse than that, just dismissive tags that we put on people. Jew, pagan, ignorant, uneducated, barbarian, Greek. All of these labels, whether contemptuously uttered or thought, or whether worn with contemptuous pride by those who wear those labels, are not, repeat, they are not indicative of the new and permanent Reality in Christ. None of them are. Paul had already made this case in previous epistles. Let me just give you a few of them. I think most of these are from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I tend to favor. But, of course, the Greek is infinitely better. But here, Galatians 3.26 through 28, speaking of these tags and labels, For you are all sons of God through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. That may be my translation. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. Notice it. There is no Jew or Greek. These labels are non-existent in the new reality that is Christ. There is no slave or free male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, that's Christ possessive, Christ apostrophe S, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 1 Corinthians 12.12, speaking of the intimacy of the unity of believers and their interdependence, not independence, interdependence, Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 taken together reads like this. For as the body is one and has many parts, notice the ring of that truth in Romans 12, 5. And all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit in the same lake, in the same river. In the same baptismal font. Oh, wait a minute. It doesn't say that. It says, we were all 
baptized by one spirit into one body, by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Colossians 3.9, another place, profound. And this is with a, a nod to Dave Bradshaw, my friend who brought this up this past week, at least verse 11. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his practices and have put on the new man. Verse 10, who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of his creator. Verse 11, here, that is in this new reality, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But listen to this phrase, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. He comprises all of us. We are collectively Christ. For me, living is Christ. Christ, who is our life, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. God doesn't see the sin that Christ became. He sees Christ and you in him and he in you and you together as the body of Christ. This is the reason why the body is called Christ. Christ is all and in all is a statement that encompasses much more than we have yet realized. I'm speaking for myself. It encompasses much more than we have realized up to this point. Reality itself is Jesus, and he is the reality of the reconciliation of all things. He is that. He does not become that in the future. He is that now. Faith is the conviction of that unseen thing, and it's the hope that that unseen reality will be realized and manifested even to sight one day when God has all of human beings alive at once and all times become simultaneous and all flesh experiences the salvation that is God, God's salvation, the salvation that is Jesus. What a plan God has had. Even the shame that I have that I once did not see him that way is wiped away by his mercy. Even the shame that I had at not seeing him that way has been wiped away by his mercy. Colossians 3.1 goes on to say this, and Messiah's apostle to the nation goes on to say this. Verse 12, Colossians 3, therefore God's chosen ones. Chosen meaning what? Chosen above others, chosen instead of others, no. Chosen as a prolepsis, as a provisional prolepsis of people who come to know this reality 
before it's manifested to sight to all creation. That's what we're chosen for. Don't ask why. I don't. I don't ask why. Sometimes, some days I say, it's not so much, why have you chosen me for this and not someone else? It's, why have you chosen me for this? There's a lot more, well, there's a lot more kind of like hassles to be chosen by you than not be chosen by you and just kind of carefree go along with everything. No, we're against the grain. You talk about resistance. We resist the whole age called an evil age. That's what we do. We put on the full armor from God and we stand against. We're the real resistors. You want a revolution? You want a real revolution? Then put on the armor of God and resist the evil age and the principalities and powers in heavenly places that are behind it. Our battle isn't with flesh and blood. Literally blood and flesh but with principalities and powers. So all political resistance movements miss the whole point of reality. They're part of that against which they think they're revolting. And it's, a, it's just a, an ignorance, which I don't demean. It's just a fact. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and love, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, Gentleness and patience. You see, after baptism, usually the Christians that were baptized, that body of believers would offer them, the baptizans, as they were called, the baptizans, the persons that were baptized were offered a change of clothes. They put on a new set of clothes after they were dunked in their old clothes. So they put on new clothes. Paul's using the metaphor of this to say, Put on, you've put on a new man altogether. You've put on, now put on the new clothes that you get, which is heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. That sounds like a foreign language to me today. Forgiving one another if one has a complaint against another. And we're talking here about serious complaints. Forgiving one another if someone has a complaint against another. That sounds foreign to me about, it doesn't seem to be what people are doing today. In social media or elsewhere. Forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, here's the dynamic state of love, which is God-approved livingness. Above all, put on love. The perfect bond of unity. The perfect bond of unity. It not only unites all these other virtues, it unites saints that were once divided. Put on, above all, Love. All these other things can be seen underneath. We're coming up, whether you like it or not, it doesn't seem like it because it's about 100 degrees today, but we're coming up toward the winter season when we will put on a parka or a coat or something over everything else. And that's love in this analogy. Put on love. It's the 
bond of perfection or the bond of unity. It's really the glue that holds all the rest together. It's that which is overt and seen, while these other virtues, virtues like humility and heartfelt compassion are all underneath. Love is demonstrated. Love is canonic love. It's self-humiliating or self-humbling, really, not humiliating. Self-humbling, self-giving love, serving one another by love. So then, above all, put on love. In verse 15, let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. The peace of Messiah control your hearts. That's peace, not just your own intrapsychic, as they call it today, but it is the exoteric peace, like the Spartans called it, exoterica harmonia, harmony between persons, so that one man strikes, or many men strike as one person in a battle, for example. Be thankful. Notice that humility and thankfulness are both kind of standing out in relief here. It's kind of like what I started with. Humility and thankfulness, gratefulness. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you. That's why we keep meeting. That's why we meet frequently for the teaching of the word of God. It's the only way that we can together let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another. That means that some have the gift of teaching, some the gift of admonishment, but we all have the ability to teach and admonish on another level, one one to another, and those in the world also. One another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. If you don't have a singing voice and, like me, you croak instead of sing, when we sing on Sunday, we don't do a lot of it, but we do a hymn or a spiritual song, sing. It's not cool to stand back and be standoffish and, well, I'm a man. I don't sing with other people. Yeah. That's not you. We sing. And it's amazing how many times you sing a song and it catches you the rest of the week. You find yourself singing. To God be the glory. Great thing. And then you do something wonderful and then to God be the glory. Great things he has done, and that comes back to you. Told you I croak. Now, actually, I already did croak, and my life was hid with Christ in God. So here's the thing. The big idea in Colossians 3, 9 to 16 is that there is a God-approved livingness that emerges from the recognition of the unity that was created by God's Spirit among Jews, Greeks, Circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, savage, slave, free, male and female, because Christ is all and he is in all. Tapanta, kai en pasen Christos, or Christos. Tapanta, kai en pasen Christos. Why am I saying that in the Greek? In the English Young's Literal Translation of the Holy Bible by J.N. Young, he has it this way. But the all and in all hyphen Christ. 
The all in all or the all and in all Christ is tapantakai and pasen Christos and the very same syntactical construction only this time tapanta and pasen the same word tapanta all things in all things all in all is found in 1 Corinthians 15:28 which reaches to the eschatological moment when God becomes all and in all, when the Son will have handed himself over to the Father, when the Son subjects himself to the Father, he simultaneously subjects all created reality in all of its times to God because in the parousia, we call it, the second coming, the second advent, which Christ will not ask permission if he can have his advent. He didn't in the first advent. He won't in the second. In the parousia, Christ will be all and in all of created reality in all of its times. All of created reality already is comprised of Christ. Reality is Jesus. Now, because the Father is pleased to dwell fully in his Son, and because the Son indwells all reality in all of its times, then God will reside in all things in all of their times when all times become simultaneous. And as I said, as a kind of illustration from more modern history, Shaka of the Zulus and Eric of the, of the Vikings, Eric of the Red of the Vikings, arms over each other's shoulders, sing praise to God the Father, led by their older brother, who has brought them into glory. It's astonishing. Perpetrators and victims. How about this one? Hillary and Donald arm in arm, focused on Christ, glad for his lordship, singing praise. Even more, Donald's followers and Hillary's followers, all loving each other, singing to God. All those whose pastor is Sean Hannity, and all those whose pastor is Rachel Maddow, arm in arm, praising God. No differences, no distinctions. Thanksgiving, praise, adoration. No room for resentment, envy, hatred, competitiveness, inordinate ambition, self-congratulation, hatred, jealousy, maligning, slandering, backbiting, fighting, all gone. I see it. I don't have to imagine it like John Lennon did. I see it with the eyes of faith. I see no more religion, no hell below us, and no heaven above us because it's a new heaven and a new earth right with us.
a brotherhood of man, the man Christ Jesus, who says when he sees the Father, here I am, Father. Not me only, though, me and all the children you gave to me, which is all the children in Adam, redeemed and justified. That's the last judgment. Scared of it? I have a certain fear of facing it because I just can't imagine how awesome it's going to be. And so it's kind of almost scary to see how wonderful it's going to be. So in closing, all of created reality already is comprised of Christ. This is a revelation which is reserved, however, strictly speaking, for that which is future to us and to the world. As God's chosen ones, we were elected by him to know and to acknowledge that reality is Jesus now and that he comprises all things now. There is no reality outside of the saving and reconciling reality that is Jesus. So that includes this idea. There is no hell. Now, you don't start out your message like that. You don't go to a church and say, you're going to be a guest speaker. Okay, I'm going to go to a church that for centuries has believed that people go to hell and start off by saying, there's no hell. Because then everybody files out except for one person who's hopeful that you'll clarify that. So an idea for a book, you write it, you publish it, you get the royalties and make the money. Hell, question mark, no, exclamation. Somebody's probably already done it. There's every kind of quip you can use about hell has already been done. So for now, there's a God-approved livingness among those who have been awakened and gifted with faith. For now, the church, also known as the messianic community, is the proleptic new creation. If you've been gifted with faith to see this, it doesn't make you better than the one who doesn't see it. It doesn't even really make you special. You're just getting a kind of a proleptic foreview and preview of what all the world is going to see and all humanity in all of its times is going to experience. But there is a certain overwhelming privilege to it to have this faith and to be thankful for it. So we have the obligation to be thankful if God has evoked faith in these realities in us. But we do not have the right of pride or comparison with others. Because one died for all and all died. So now there's an approved livingness, an approved by God livingness among those who have been awakened and gifted with faith. For now the church, therefore, also known as the messianic community, is the proleptic new creation, a harbinger of the new creation, the first robin in spring, the Israel of God, 
the first fruits of the universal restoration. And there is for us, therefore, a GAL, a God approved livingness. In a phrase, it is a faith that works by love. It is the rule in Galatians 6.16, according to which the Israel of God walks. Now, just jumping ahead, because I didn't get to these last two verses and may have to reserve this for the next week. Romans 12.6, according to the grace given to us all. That's all given to us, according to the grace given to us. That's one grace. That's the saving grace of God, which baptized us into Christ, the saving grace of God. According to the grace given to us, I will put in brackets all, because that's what he means, all. According to the grace given to us all, we each, this is again translational, translationally helpful, what I'm putting in here. According to the grace given to us all, we each, have different gifts. Different gifts, one grace. What unites us, one grace and differing gifts. Differing gifts are not what disunites us, but they are the diversity that is proper to the unity of grace because they're called caris mata, gifts of grace. According to the grace given to us all, we each have different gifts. If one of those gifts is prophecy, let it be in agreement with the faithfulness. There's that standard of faithfulness again. In other words, if you're going to prophesy, which is really interpret and proclaim the word, like I'm doing right now, this is in that sense prophesying, you must let the one do it or let it be used to proclaim or tell forth the faithfulness of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. It's not according to faith or according to your faith, although we believe and therefore we speak. What we should be proclaiming in prophesying is God's faithfulness in Christ Jesus for the world. That's the gospel. Verse 7, if your gift is service, we get the word deacon from this, diakonos. We could say if you're a deacon, deek. If you're a teacher, teach. If your gift is service, then concentrate on service, is what he's saying. You do, this is kind of like Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever you find, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with total concentration. If your gift is service, then concentrate on service. If it's teaching, then concentrate on teaching. If it is to encourage, then concentrate on encouraging. If your gift is to share, then share without holding back. If it is to be a caregiver, then do it earnestly. If it's mercy, then do acts of mercy cheerfully, unreservedly. What he's saying here is several things. First, he's saying, if you have recognized your particular gift, execute it with diligence and concentration. Not half-heartedly, but with the labor of love and with the love of that labor of your gift. There's profound satisfaction not only in a so-called job well done, but the satisfaction is in the wholehearted concentration 
of your gift. Second, Paul is urging against a one-man or a one-woman show by saying concentrate on that gift that you have, something you may already be doing. In fact, many of the so-called spiritual gifts come across as very secular. They may even be classed as worldly gifts. They're not recognized by the so-called spiritual. Like the woman who poured ointment over the head of Jesus Christ, they thought that was wasteful, vulgar, classless, secular. Jesus said, you have no idea. That woman just prepared me for my burial, which is part of the Christ event. You really don't know, do you? A waitress who brings you your breakfast might be having the gift of service. Or a server. I'm sorry for saying waitress. I realize I'm still stuck in the masculine bias of anthropos. And the whole Bible was written with a masculine bias. So we have to say he or she and he or she and she or he and she or he. But now there's, of course, there are 67 genders. So I don't know what the hell I'm going to do next time I say the word Adelphoi. But those are just a couple of points. He's secondly, thirdly, he's incentivizing being a master of one trade rather than a jack of all trades and a master of none. That's what he's saying. Be a master of one trade, so to speak, not a jack of all trades and a master of none, so to speak, to use an idiom. Fourth, he's revealing that those that though there are gifts whose exercise is unfamiliar to you, some gifts may appear to be secular or non-religious to the spiritual, but don't be fooled. So, and then there are other things. Fourth, with his apostolic authority and grace, Paul is urging against envy because of another's gifts. Instead of saying, I wish I had their gift, or instead of trying to outdo them by assuming you can do it better in the energy of the flesh, instead of that, function in your gift. You say, I don't know what it is. You'll find out what it is. You'll be doing it and loving it before you know it, and then you'll say, hey, that's my gift. It's empowered by the Spirit. There is as much satisfaction in wholehearted caregiving as there is in teaching, though there's less publicity with the former. If someone is a teacher because of a spiritual gift and you think you can do better, though your gift is one of service, and you begin to teach in your own ability in competition with the teacher, then you'll ultimately be exposed as someone without the Spirit's specific endowment for teaching. Fifth, this short dissertation on charismata, or gifts, grace gifts, grace enablements, is intended to squelch divisions over different gifts and to show that we are all recipients of the one grace. This, too, is connected to Paul's purpose to be a minister of reconciliation and an announcer of the demolition of the walls that partitioned off believers from one another. All of this in, in, to bring us back to the very beginning of what I introduced, and I hope that all goes on tape if possible, the first introduction before the prayer and then the prayer and then the message. All of this is rooted in the saving righteousness of God for all. It's rooted in God whose very existence is his existence to save, called Prometheus. 
Barth, I'll close with him. Karl Barth has an interesting comment that I think will illustrate this nicely. Listen to what he said. Quote, the reality of the righteousness of God is attested by its universality. It is not irrelevant that it is precisely Paul who, daring in Jesus, also to perceive the divine breaking down of all human distinctions. Indeed, Paul's courage proceeds from his insight. Because he is the apostle of the Gentiles, he is the prophet of the kingdom of God. Once the interdependence was obscured, there came into being, quote, missionary work, close quote. But this is something quite different from the mission of Paul. His mission did not erect barriers. It tore them down. So in closing, there is one grace, but many diverse charismata or gifts. The important thing is that each gift is meant to be operative by the same grace and as a function of participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in the dynamic state of love, the love of God that is poured out in our hearts. And we thank you, Father, for that reality. We thank you. Well, there are unspeakable things that we can acknowledge by faith if you have gifted us with that faith. And I pray that you will do that for us and that you will bring us into the obedience of faith as a congregation. We thank you for the opportunity of offering a sacrifice of substance.